0: You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from technology advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor.
1: One of the most interesting things about working in the B2B tech space is watching the advent and evolution of emerging technologies. For many B2B marketers, emerging tech is just a different game from marketing more established tools and applications. There's more education required for the prospects. There's less competitive displacement involved than with more established tools. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. James Cuthbertson is the chief revenue officer at Relative Insight, a text analysis platform used by marketing and other organizations in the business. Relative Insight has a somewhat unique background. Its original application was using text analysis to help keep children safe online. But as the Relative Insight platform has evolved, so too has the company's demand gen strategy. In this episode of B2B Nation, we're talking to James about this evolution. We'll also discuss his thoughts on developing and communicating pricing strategy and what frustrates both buyers and sellers along the B2B purchase journey. Have a listen. James Cuthbertson, welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you take a minute and tell us who you are and what you do?
0: Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. So, yeah, um, I'm the CRO, Chief Revenue Officer at Relative Insight. Um, We are a language analytics business uh, and... My day-to-day is taken up um, pretty evenly split between running our sales organization, um, our account management and customer success team, which is like for our existing businesses and then working with uh, our marketing teams, enablement, customer experience. So basically my remit is anything that, that touches our customers or our prospects at Relative.
1: All right, let's talk a little bit about the applications of language analysis for B2B marketers. How are firms putting this technology to work?
0: Yeah, so broadly, if we start broadly, because language analysis is a fairly broad church. So if we start really like way out, the first application that we see is largely around using language analysis in order to inform communications, branding, positioning, that kind of strategic um, positioning for brands. And also in agency land, the same kind of work. We also would roll into that like pitch work for agencies, so we tend to end up being drawn into, you know, for marketers that work agency side, um, we tend to get drawn into helping um, in pitch work, helping them stand out because they're able to bring a little bit of credentials to the space. The second application, from a marketeer's point of view, is um, more around the sort of customer experience journey. So how is it that um, contact centers and call centers and operatives that are representing the company, like how can language analytics be used to shape the way that that they do their, their jobs? And so I would say broadly, those are the two main applications. We do have a third application, but that largely applies to HR or internal um, communications people, not so much marketers.
1: When prospects, potential customers approach you guys, what, is the problem they're often trying to solve? Is it an efficiency thing? Is it automation? Is it we spend too much time doing this? If we can have a machine do it, it'll allow us to focus on more essential activities. How do they kind of come to you?
0: Yeah, it's a, fa- a fascinating and very important question. So back in the day, when we first started out on this journey, like over three years ago, we used to think that time saving was the, the thing, you know, like the zeitgeist, For our technology, we thought that people were able to do what we did, but it took them too long um, and we could save them time. And what we've learned over the last three or four years is that actually that is not accurate. You know, we've learned that actually, arguably, using relative insight won't save you any time, but what it will bring you is rigor and science. You know, we're able to take human error out of analyzing language. And do it with technology so that's one of the big things that we've realized that time saving isn't probably right up there one of the things that we often see though and we're seeing more and more is that people come to us and say like we've got loads of data we've got data from everywhere loads of different applications all different types it's all very messy unstructured and we can't really do anything with it and so that's the probably the biggest if i wanted to roll it up into a big topic that would be the thing that we're seeing the most that most people are saying you know we've got loads and loads of data it's all all over the shop, disorganized, unstructured, and we want to like get more out of it. We wanna make more of it. And so that's where we come in relative.
1: As a marketer and seller yourself, what does the buying process and the buying journey for your prospects and customers look like? Is it you guys use like a sales development or business development rep? How informed are your prospects when they finally talk to someone on your sales team?
0: Yeah, another crucial area. So I think again I will probably talk about if you don't mind like the way that we've evolved so I think when we first started out on this journey um, I would have to honestly say that the majority of our customers when they're being introduced to a demo would know you know little to nothing about relative insight because we were outbounding you know in a fairly traditional fashion we were using BD to get out there and talk to people introduce them through our origin story which is you know fairly unique um, and then Showing them a demo and trying to happen upon something that might be useful for them. But I think over the last few years, through the development of our sales team and also with things like enablement that have had a huge part to play in refining our process, we now understand the people that are really going to benefit from relative insights. So we're able to be more targeted on who we actually approach. And we're also using marketing, our demand gen marketing, to invest time to make sure that people understand what it is that we do, why it's valuable, how others have benefited from it, so that when they uh, come to actually see a demo, they're already kind of in the room mentally. And then we go beyond that as well. Like we've created uh, one of the nice things that the marketing team have done recently is what we're calling our considerations document. So you've seen relative, you know, you're thinking it could be useful before you actually pull the trigger and buy it, like here are six things to go and investigate in your organization. And examples would be like, you know, if you do buy this thing and you are able to find loads of insights from language data, like what would you do with them? Or who is the actual ultimate customer in your organization? Um, Or where is your language data? Where does it sit? Who owns it? Some stuff like that. So we've actually, um, we've realized how important education is throughout the process.
1: And that's, that's setting your customers up for success. I think that's something that maybe not all software vendors or maybe maybe it's not software vendors, but maybe it's the marketers. Like if, if the end goal is making that sale and we all know that you know, business with existing customers is sort of the preferred, it's easier than going out and, and finding new customers, you have to set them up for success. If you kind of stop at that initial sale, uh, you, you could get yourself in trouble.
0: Totally agree. Pointless. We we often, I think if you speak to some of our team, they might say that um, they're sick of hearing it, but we always say that we don't want to sell to anyone, that we can't help succeed. Um, we're uninterested in those relationships because no one ultimately benefits. You know, it's very short term. Um, and so I think, again, we've moved towards you know, closing that aperture. You know, when you start, you think, oh, we could sell this to everyone and anyone and they can all benefit from it. And now we've realized actually that we need to close that aperture and actually just um, speak to people that we know can succeed and then really invest in helping them
1: succeed. How does that affect the type of demand gen tactics that you use? Because as you're saying, you're narrowing it down, you're narrowing down on on certain titles because titles, you know, change from organization to organization. There's not a lot of consistency there. Um, so how does that affect how you got and find people?
0: Hugely, I would say. <laughs> so um, our enablement team did a, a, a major project last year, last year, which was around via personas. So attempting to try and leave job titles at the door and actually look a little bit more about you know, what it is that these people do really? in an agency or in a brand. And now when our content marketeers, Emily and Michaela, are writing content, they're thinking about which persona it's for. Or when um, Jess, our marketing director, is putting a case study together, she's thinking about which persona it's for. Um, and on and on through our, you know, our outbound salespeople, et cetera, they're always thinking about which persona. And that's become part of our qualification handover. You know, when, when it goes to a rep to actually do a demo, not only are they given things like the classic like budget and time frame and all that good stuff, they're also given which persona the person is. So that we really are bringing that into everything we do. And it's meant that we're we're wasting less time attempting to try and educate people that maybe are a little bit left field um, because those types of people, unfortunately, tend to succeed less. Um, So, yeah, the aperture effect's been huge for us over the last, especially the last 12 months.
1: I think we could still refer to natural language processing as an emerging technology. So how does that affect the way that you market and sell your company as opposed to a more established technology? Do you find yourself having to kind of go back to the roots of what NLP is or are, are most of your customers pretty well versed in that when they show up?
0: Yeah, so I would say that like the thing, the thing with language analysis, whichever way it's done, whether it's through natural language processing or any other way. And ours is ultimately a comparative linguistics model. I think the one thing about our space at the moment, and I think this is probably on the cusp of changing, is that we don't really do displacement selling. So we won't ever have a situation where it's like, I'm using X and I'm interested in replacing them or at least seeing what's out there. Like we never have those kind of processes. So what that means is that our marketeers and our salespeople need to be brilliant storytellers, you know, arguably stronger sort of storytellers than maybe if they were doing displacement selling. Because you can never just sell on price. You can never really sell on features. You know, we have this. Whereas someone else you've had a demo from doesn't, you know that's just not going to wash. It doesn't exist, and so it's more about building building the the need from from the base up and saying like, what is, how does your organization work? How could language analytics make it better, and then and then a fitting in relative insight into that broader broader requirement. Um, I'd say that's the biggest thing. You know, ultimately, as in an emerging tech space, the competitor sell is just not really a thing, and that makes it quite different.
1: What about the B2B buying and selling process today frustrates your sellers or your buyers? We hear a lot about how much self-education is done, how far down the funnel towards a decision buyers are, potential buyers are when they show up to talk to sales. Uh, But what else is there that maybe frustrates people on both sides of the equation?
0: I mean it, this is a like <laughs> where to start kind of question, however, I'll try and pick one. Um, I think the one that comes to mind is probably um, people entering into from a buyer's point of view let's start with buyers. I think that something that frustrates frustrates the team about potential buyers is people that enter into a buying process that actually have no buying power um, because they're interested, which is totally fair enough by the way um and I love people that are interested in what we do. But I think one of the things that our sales team probably struggle the most with is because what we do is interesting. You know, we come from a heritage of protecting children online. Um, it's a really eye-catching story. People want to hear a bit more. And so some of our especially uh, newer salespeople that are newer to this spend a great deal of time speaking with people that are interested but never, never, ever intended to buy. And so I think that's one of the things that, that we get caught up in. I think if we had, had a, a more boring origin story, or if what we did was a bit more boring, we would have less of that. You know, <laughs> um, So, uh, yeah, maybe we're a little bit guilty of that. Um, and then on the other side, I think from a seller's point of view, I think something that I see frustrate, sorry, from a buyer's point of view, something that I see frustrate potential buyers is, Clarity around what it actually is that they're getting and what it is that they need. You know, coming from a, a social media listening heritage myself, I think that um, a lot of buyers will get excited about the prospect of doing language analysis, or they'll get excited about the prospect of doing social listening. They get to the the pricing conversation, and then people are quoting them mentions and words and how many like um, analysis units you're going through. And I think that what a lot of technology businesses don't do well is that they don't price their technology in a set in a sensitive fashion they don't make it about how the buyer's world works so if you say to someone okay you know let's take you i don't know your adidas for example and they want to buy your technology and you say well you are probably going to need three million words a month like that means nothing to adidas they haven't got a clue what that means so what we try to do is say right we, we we price on projects so you might want to do one project a month, which is like one business question. And, and, and that's helped us a great deal, I think, because it, people get it. They don't understand words. They don't understand mentions. And so that's one thing I've seen frustrate people down the years for sure.
1: And that's part of, maybe part of the emerging technology issue is, like you said, you're not displacing people. So this isn't a world that they have played in in the past. And how it's priced, it's price difference from a lot of the MarTech applications that people may be, you know, kicking the tires on. So language all of its own, right? And it is, it's a, a
0: new it's a new currency, yeah. Uh,
1: so sticking with the emerging technology theme, if we were having this conversation one year from now, what might we be talking about in terms of NLP technology or even the B2B buying process?
0: Yeah, no, it's another cracking question. So I think that personally, I think that, it's a very exciting time to be in language analysis in one way or another. And what we've seen us, the emergence of some other people in our space that are doing really interesting things. And contrary to popular belief, we think that that's a really exciting thing because what it means is that people are taking language analytics seriously and it's becoming a thing, you know, for want of a better phrase. And so some of the other providers in the space are actually going to start to help us. And we're going to help one another because we're going to start to educate the, the marketing world around language analysis as a community of vendors. And uh, we think that, you know, the tide raises all boats. We think that's a great thing. So It's going to be easier to
1: have those conversations we just talked about, quite, right? Because quite, exactly. <laughs> it won't be so new to everybody.
0: Yeah, because it will be anchored in something else. and So we can share the lifting of educating marketeers around language analysis. So I think that if we were to be chatting in a year, I think we might be saying, It's less about going West and putting your flag in the sand and more about really truly deciding what it is that you're brilliant at as a, as a vendor. Um, And and that's the way that you can stand out and play nicely in that ecosystem um, as opposed to it just being price wars, which no one wants.
1: Do you feel like prospects when they come to you have trouble with differentiation because it's a new language and a new currency because the vendors aren't as established as they are in some of the other sectors, like, do you get that? Like, I can't tell one from the other. I don't understand why one is different from the other.
0: Categorically, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a huge thing. And I think that one of the things we have to help people understand right at the beginning is one, you know, we don't want to replace anything else you've got because we, you know, we can help you get more out of the language that you're getting from some of your other MarTech tools. Uh, and two, you know, we're not a social listening vendor. I think those are the two things that we we have to face off the most, most commonly.
1: What is your favorite tool? What is the one thing that you cannot work without? If we took it away from you, your productivity would screech to a halt. <laughs> yeah,
0: uh, honestly, this is probably the hardest question to answer. But I think that it's going to be a really boring answer. But I'm probably going to say my email inbox. And bear with me because that's like, really boring, but I'll explain, I'll give you a bit more context. So, I, tr- I operate uh, an inbox zero rule and I really am militant with it. Um, I never ever go beyond five emails in a working day and at the end of the day I get back down to zero. And I have folders and I email myself in the middle of the night when I'm having crazy, crazy ideas about work and so it serves loads of purposes for me and I think without it, I'd, I'd lose a lot of my powers.
1: I have, I'm very guilty of the emailing myself. I am very guilty of the emailing myself if I find something and I'm on a device that's not connected to my work account. Like I come in in the morning and I see an email from me with the subject matter link and it's just like, the URL. Yeah, <laughs>
0: that's exactly it. Yeah. what
1: was I thinking about? At I it was, it was worse when my kids were babies and I was up at weird hours and I was like, what, what, why did I send this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> yeah. All right. James Cuthbertson. CRO of Relative Insight. Thanks for appearing on B2B Nation. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to James Cuthbertson, CRO of Relative Insight, for joining us on this episode of B2B Nation. Thanks also to technology advice colleagues, Amy Dunn, Sarah Wingate, and Emily Whalen. If you found this episode interesting, share it with a friend or colleague and subscribe to B2B Nation on Apple, Google, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Mnemonics in the Guild is responsible for our theme song, Here It Is to See You Out.